All right, so the joy of the kids singing, and I'm one of the happy dads watching my own kids up here in the choir. Um, the joy of hearing the kids' reflections on Spanish phrases like NHL Deo. The joy of Josh's dad jokes and height jokes. Where does one go from here? Where we're going to go is we're going to spend some time together in uh, Philippians chapter 2. We just read these words out loud. If you want to open your Bible to Philippians chapter 2, you can keep an eye on it. And as you're turning there to Philippians chapter 2, use the table of contents if you need to, P-H-I-L in the table of contents. As you're turning there, uh, we'll start with something from C.S. Lewis's seven children's novels that are known as the Chronicles of Narnia. They feature several children from our world in the days of World War II who find their way into the enchanted world of Narnia. And one of the most wonderful moments to my eyes in the series of books comes in The Last Battle. A great deal of the story of the last battle revolves around this mysterious stable. The bad guys surround the stable and use it to their advantage. The good guys don't dare enter this stable. And finally, when all hope seems lost, and when defeat seems certain... And when the whole world seems to be coming to an end, the good guys have their backs up against the wall and they have nowhere else to turn. And so they retreat for safety into this mysterious stable. And then when they enter this mysterious stable, what they find takes their breath away. When they go through the stable door and hide on the other side with their eyes squeezed shut and then open their eyes, they find, to their great surprise, a whole new world. Outside the stable was a world of Narnian darkness, torn apart by war and violence. But inside this tiny stable, they begin to discover a whole world of light and peace. And then there's this wonderful little bit of dialogue as the good guys try to figure out what in the world is going on with this mysterious stable. It seems then says Trillian, smiling, that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. Yes, said the Lord Diggory, its inside is bigger than its outside. Yes, said the Queen Lucy, in our world too, A stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. Lucy gets all the best lines, doesn't she? This is why we are slowing down in these weeks leading up to Christmas Day to pay attention slowly to these verses in Philippians chapter 2. 
When we think about the Bible's story of Christmas, maybe we think of a nativity scene, a small cave or a small stable with animals and shepherds and Mary and Joseph and the newborn baby. But Philippians chapter 2 It helps us see what's inside the stable. To borrow the words of Diggory, Philippians chapter 2 helps us to see that what's inside that nativity stable is bigger than everything outside it. Or to borrow the words of Queen Lucy, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. In Philippians chapter 2, we get a glimpse into the world inside that stable. We're going slowly, just a few lines per week, and this week we'll think especially about These words in verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And I'm deeply convinced that my words are not enough for the glory of what we're thinking about in our passage today. But I've been praying and I'm continuing to pray that God, by the power of His Spirit among us right now, will help each of us to see a little more clearly the awe-inspiring and life-changing glory of the humility of Jesus Christ. That He poured Himself out By taking the form of a servant. In a little bit we'll think about what the humility of Christ means for us. But we'll begin first by considering what it meant for him. We're going to begin by considering what it meant for him to take the form of a servant. And the background of understanding what it meant for him to take the form of a servant is what we thought about last week as we looked at Philippians chapter 2 verse 6, which says, uh, which says in, in verse 6, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And there are two words that we need to notice in that phrase from Philippians 2.6. The first word that we need to understand in order to understand Jesus' identity is the word form. Being in the form of God's. In this context, in Philippians 2, the word form does not refer simply to the outward appearance of something. It refers rather to the true essence of something. And for that reason, I think that the NIV is a clearer translation on this issue when it describes Jesus Christ as being, quote, in very 
nature God. You see, according to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, Jesus Christ was not merely a good teacher. According to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, Jesus Christ was not merely one of the great prophets. According to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, Jesus was not merely one of the great leaders in world history. According to the New Testament, Jesus Christ eternally existed as the Son of God. He eternally existed being in very nature God. That's the first word that we need to notice in order to understand what it meant for Jesus to take the form of a servant. We need to understand that word form in verse 6. Another word that we need to pay attention to in verse 6 is the word equality. Jesus Christ possessed, quote, equality with God. It's a shocking statement to make. In the same breath, the author of the letter to the Philippian church named Paul, in the same breath, Paul says that Jesus is equal with God and yet distinct from God in some way. It's the same thing that we read about When Jesus is described in John's gospel, in the opening words of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Do you hear it there? The word was God and the word was with God. Equal with God in one sense and distinguishable in some senses from God. Equal in being with God and yet distinct in person from God the Father and God the Spirit. These are the building blocks that lead to this profound teaching of Christianity that we call the Trinity, our belief that our triune God, one God, has eternally existed in three persons. This is the background of what it meant for Jesus Christ to take on the form of a servant. In order to understand what it meant for Jesus to take the form of a servant, we need to understand that Jesus eternally existed as the glorious Son of God. To borrow language from one of the most popular Christmas carols, Jesus Christ is true God of true God, light from light eternal. He always has been and he always will be very God of very God. Before anything was ever created, he eternally existed in in, in this glorious unity with the Father and the Spirit. 
And after the creation of the world, he dwelt in a high and holy place in unapproachable light, surrounded by the thunderous worship of angelic beings crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is the background to the stupefying truth that we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. That Jesus Christ, having always been in very nature God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung on to. But, verse 7 says, he emptied himself. The eternal Son of God emptied himself. That idea of self-emptying is difficult to translate, probably because the idea itself kind of explodes your brain in any language. The Old English translation vividly rendered it, he made himself of no reputation. This one who eternally existed in the happy fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who since creation was heralded with shouts of holy, 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 he made himself of no reputation. The NIV says something similar. He made himself nothing. The core idea of emptying something is almost a word picture of pouring out something, like a pitcher of water being poured out. And this idea of pouring out has led some people to say, oh, I get it, the Son of God stopped being God when He became human. But that's an age-old heresy. It's false, and it is a misreading of Philippians chapter 2. Because Philippians chapter 2 does not say that Jesus poured the God out of himself as if that were possible. What does it say? He poured out himself. He gave what? Himself. And how? How did he give himself? How did he pour himself out? According to verse 7, he did not pour himself out by losing something. He poured himself out by adding something. He poured himself out by taking the form of a servant. The Roman world of Jesus' day was obsessed with power and status. And I suppose in our own way, our world today is similarly infatuated with power and status. And yet here is the most powerful being in the universe. 
who outranks anything in all of creation because he exists outside of creation. And what does he do with his power and his greatness? Here's what he does. He willingly allows himself to be wrapped in swaddling cloths as a dependent child. What does he do with his power and status? He willingly submits himself to his mother and his father as he grows in wisdom and understanding. What does he do with his power and his status? He surrounds himself with fishermen and with people regarded as nobodies. What does he do with his power and his status? He spends his energy on behalf of untouchable lepers. People that others would stay away from at all costs. He spends his energy on behalf of a dying girl. He spends his energy on behalf of a paralyzed man. He spends his energy on behalf of the hungry and on, and on behalf of the hurting and on behalf of all those lost sheep who are starving for a word from heaven. And then came the moment when he knew he was going to die. The question is sometimes asked, you know, if you knew that you only had one day left to live, what would you do with it? Let this sink in. Jesus knew he had only one day left to live. And what did he choose to do with it? He spent it serving his disciples. Jesus, the great teacher, more than that, Jesus, the son of the living God, stood up from the holiday meal, knowing he had only a short time left to live. And he put on the apron of a servant. And he got down on his knees with a basin of water. And he started doing a task that even most servants in his time and culture would have refused to do because it was beneath their dignity. He bent down on one knee and one disciple at a time. He took his basin of water and he washed the feet of his disciples. Knowing he had only one day left to live, what did Jesus do? He loved his disciples to the very end. And how did he love them? By taking on the apron of a servant. By kneeling down at their feet. And by looking out, we might say, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Why does Jesus spend the final moments of freedom before his death with things like scrubbing his disciples' feet and praying to his Father and talking to his disciples about love? Why? Because this is who Jesus truly is. 
He is the eternal Son of God who became a servant. He is the eternal Son of God who, being in very nature God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but poured Himself out, gave Himself in love. Specifically by adding or taking on the essence of a servant. This is who Jesus is. The Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve. And to give His life as a ransom for many. That's a very simple overview of what it meant for Him. To become a servant. But the next question I want to lead us in considering is this. What does that mean for us? If Jesus, the eternal son of God, willingly and gladly took on the nature of a servant. What does that mean for us? I have three answers for you. Answer number one is this. In a word, worship. Because of his glorious humility in becoming a servant, I want to invite you to worship him. A great part of what I want to say about that is simply this. Doesn't Jesus Christ's glorious humility reveal his glory to you in a new way? Doesn't Jesus Christ's glorious humility, don't you admire him all the more because of that? Now, I'm sure there are probably plenty of reasons why I can't fully recommend the 1988 movie Coming to America. Starring Eddie Murphy. But if you're somewhere around my age, then you know the story of Prince Akeem, the great prince of the fictional land of Zamunda. And this African prince wants to leave his country in search of his queen, and so he decides there's no better place to search for a queen than in Queens, New York. And so, all for love's sake, he travels to New York City. And in order to find his queen there, he intends to live just like the people of Queens, New York. And so he trades his royal wardrobe for a 1980s New York Mets jacket. He trades his royal hairstyle for a cut at the corner barber shop. And although he can at any time call in the unimaginable wealth that belongs to him as the prince of Zamunda, he decides to live in a dumpy, rat-infested apartment surviving on the meager wages of a humble employee of McDowell's restaurants. Not to be confused with McDonald's. All for love's sake, he became poor. And for Prince Akeem, 
becoming poor not only meant that he worked for McDowell's restaurant. He's not a manager there. He's not a cashier there. No, he's the guy who mops the floor with a smile on his face. But while he works at McDowell's restaurant, he meets the most intelligent, the most thoughtful, perhaps the most beautiful young woman in all of Queens, Lisa McDowell. And you've seen enough rom-coms, you know how the story goes from there. Spoiler alert, it ends in a happy wedding. But let me simply ask you this. When Lisa McDowell finally understands that Akeem, who mops the floors with a smile on his face, is also Prince Akeem, the great Prince of Zamunda, let me ask you this. Does she love him more or less on account of realizing and seeing his voluntary humility? The correct answer is this. As she marries him, she loves him even more because she knows how great he truly is. And yet she knows that all for love's sake, this glorious prince dressed himself willingly in humility. And here's the point I'm getting at. The point is that Jesus Christ is infinitely greater than Prince Akeem. Jesus Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but poured out Himself by taking on the nature of a servant. And he did this not only to find those who are the most intelligent or the most thoughtful or the easiest to love or the most put together people in the world. He did this to redeem countless millions of stubborn and rebellious and sinful people like me. You see, this is the awe-inspiring, the glorious humility of Jesus Christ. Who though he was in very nature God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but poured himself out, all for love's sake, taking on the very nature of a servant. And what is our response to that? Brothers and sisters, let me invite you to worship this gloriously humble Savior named Jesus Christ. And for friends who are more skeptical, I wonder if you could at least kind of come this far with me and agree that there is something amazing, something different, And something refreshingly different about Jesus Christ as he's described in the pages of the New Testament. Part of why this is here in our Bibles is simply to lead us to stand in awe of Jesus, to love him, even to worship him. The words themselves of Philippians chapter 2 are poetic. 
They read like a hymn, either a hymn that Paul wrote or a hymn that the early church was already singing. And so what does that mean for us? The Christmas carol says it very well. True God of true God, light from light eternal, born of a virgin to earth he comes. So here's the point. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. That's the first thing that this means for us. As we see his glorious humility, it invites us to worship our gloriously humble Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing that this means for us, in a word, trust. Trust. The glorious humility of Jesus Christ invites us to trust him more. And I know um, some of you are probably kind of listening along and you kind of go, I don't know about all this. I'm not there today. All this about loving Jesus and worshiping Jesus and trusting Jesus. I know that there are some here today who just go, I'm not there right now. Maybe some of you would say, That the emotions just aren't there in your heart. I had a conversation this week with a friend, a brother in this church family. And he was sharing honestly about his experience of depression over the last season of time. For months now. The emotions in his heart don't seem to respond the way that they normally would. Some days it's really hard to sleep. Some days it's really hard to get out of bed and leave the house. Life is really, really just one day at a time. It's hard for him to even know where to begin a conversation with a friend right now. And so even when a friend says, how are you doing? Find some way to answer. But it never seems satisfactory. I listen to this friend with a lot of compassion in my heart because I've been there before. I know what it feels like. At least I know what it felt like for me to be in that kind of depth of depression. So my heart overflows with compassion. But after I'd listened to my friend for a while talking about his experience of depression... I told my friend, I don't believe in quick fixes. If you ever want to come and talk to me as a pastor, I'm sorry, i got no quick fixes for you. I don't think it's like, you know, if you just do X plus Y plus Z, everything will be fine. It's usually not my experience with something like depression. But I also told my friends, can I preach the gospel to you for a couple minutes right now? And he said I could. And I told him I wanted to remind him what's true regardless of how much he feels it today. And I began telling him about what Jesus Christ has already done for us. In love entering our world. 
in love, fulfilling a complete obedience for us, storing up all the righteousness that would be needed on our account before God. How in love he willingly suffered and gave himself on the cross for our sins. And how he rose again in triumph over the grave. And he now ever lives to intercede for us. Which means, I told my friend, he's praying for you today. Even when you feel like you can't pray for yourself. He's praying for you. I said it in more words than that, but I just spent a few minutes telling him the good news. The good news not about what he needs to do, but the good news about what Jesus Christ has already done for him. I told him the good news that if he's with Jesus, he's okay. He's safe. He's secure. With Jesus, he's good. And there's something wonderful about Philippians chapter 2. As we get a glimpse kind of behind the scenes and under the surface of what was going on in the story of Christmas, there's something good about realizing that you and I aren't there in the manger. This whole story of salvation, this whole story of redemption, it doesn't rest on my shoulders and it doesn't rest on yours. There are going to be days when your emotions will feel great and there are going to be days when your emotions feel out of control. There are going to be days when you feel like great stuff is happening and there are going to be days when you feel like I got nothing to offer. But here's the good news. This whole story of salvation does not rest on my shoulders and it does not rest on yours. It rests on the shoulders of Jesus Christ who already did it for us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about how much you need to go and do for God. It's the good news of how much he has already done for us. And for our redemption. And for the redemption of the world. Thank God the weight of the world does not rest on our shoulders. It rests squarely on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. Who accomplished it for us. Listen, the glorious humility of Jesus teaches us that we can trust Him. In fact, one of the application points on this topic and on this passage from John Owen tells us exactly that. John Owen is remembered 400 years after his life as one of the greatest theologians, one of the greatest Christian teachers in the English-speaking world. In the very last book he wrote, a book that went to the publisher while he knew he was on his deathbed, it was a series of reflections on the glory of Christ. And here's one paragraph of what one dying saint said after a life of discipleship. He says, we may well ask, What will Christ not do for us? He who emptied and humbled Himself, who came down from the infinite height of His glory to take our finite nature into union with His infinite nature, will He not meet all our needs and answer according to His infinite wisdom all our prayers for help? Will He not do all that is necessary for us to be eternally saved? 
Will he not be a sanctuary, a refuge for us? Christ indeed, John Owen testified from his deathbed. Christ indeed is most willing and able to help us. What does it mean for us as we consider the glorious humility of Jesus Christ? We're invited to trust him. And not just to trust him with the little corners of our life that feel a little out of control occasionally as long as we've basically got it together. As we see the glorious humility of Jesus Christ, it invites us to trust him with the whole thing. One last thing that it means for us as we consider the glorious humility of Jesus Certainly, it invites us to worship Jesus. Certainly, it invites us to trust Jesus. But as we consider the glorious humility of Jesus, we are also invited to follow Jesus in how we live. We're invited to follow Jesus, especially in our relationships with others. Of course, we're all aware that we live in a cultural moment that is characterized more and more by tension, more and more by outrage, more and more by us against them. Sometimes we even feel it at our holiday meals with family members, right? Sometimes we feel it in the church of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we feel it in our own homes. Sometimes we feel it in long-standing relationships. But here's what I want to suggest. Is that the glorious humility of Jesus Christ teaches us a better way of relating with others around us. Than by following all of the outrage of the world that we live in. He teaches us a way of relating to others, not with clenched fists looking for someone to swing at, not with clenched fists looking for how I can fight back. The humble, glorious humility, the humble self-giving of Jesus teaches us to live not with clenched fists looking for somebody to fight, but with open palms looking for people to bless. It teaches us to enter into other people's lives and into other people's spaces, not demanding, but serving. Not seeking to get as much as I can, but seeking to give. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, we read earlier, but also to the interests of others. We'll think more about this theme next week as we come back and continue our way through Philippians chapter 2. But for now, we'll, we'll leave it here in saying this much. Because the eternal Son of God became a servant, as we behold His glorious humility, you and I are invited to worship Him trust him and to follow him in our lives and in our relationships with others as we behold 
the glorious humility of Jesus, we're invited to stand in awe and to live our lives a whole new way. You see, Philippians chapter 2 does give us a glimpse to the inside of the stable. It gives us a glimpse beneath the surface of the stories we hear about the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and the baby. It gives us a glimpse into the glorious heart of the eternal Son of God, who being in very nature God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but poured himself out. All for love's sake took on the very nature of a servant. I want to invite you today to worship him, to trust him, and to begin that journey of following him.